black holes are some of the most mysterious and enigmatic objects in the universe that we know about. They were theorized way back centuries ago when we were imagining, you know, there could be a region of space where if you got enough mass together in a small enough volume of space, you would reach a point where the escape velocity, the amount of speed you needed in order to escape from its gravitational pull was greater than the speed of light. And if so, what would that object be? Well, it would be a black hole, a region of space that was so dense that nothing, not even light, could escape from it. Well, here we are, centuries later in modern times. Not only does Einstein's general theory of relativity predict that these objects should exist, but it gives explicit physics for what their signals should look like, how they should affect space-time around them, and how they should interact with all the matter, energy, and all the masses around them. We've not only theorized them, we think we know astrophysically where they're located and have evidence for them. What do we know about black holes and what do we see coming in the future? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. Joining me this week is Leo Stein, an assistant professor of astronomy and physics at the University of Mississippi. Leo is an expert in black holes, general relativity, and is way too humble, as far as I'm concerned, for that introduction. Um, Leo, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ethan. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So black holes, um, they do all sorts of crazy things in the universe. One of the most confusing to most people is when they start thinking about what's happening on the event horizon of a black hole. We typically think of this as some, as some big spherical black surface. But, but as it turns out, if we could see to arbitrary accuracy and precision what was going on on the surface of a black hole, it wouldn't exactly look like that at all, would it? Yeah, it's very difficult to get a handle on it, um, especially when you're not used to thinking in terms of four dimensions and what's in the future and what's in the past. What can you actually see? Um, so this is something that you get familiar with, you get trained with when you study special relativity and then general relativity, uh, which is the domain that you need to understand to um, to really get a grasp on the physics behind black holes. So one of the most counterintuitive things is that the event horizon of a black hole is is in the future of all of us, as long as we're not inside of a black hole. So we tend to think about event horizons as the surface of something, like we think of the surface of a star, like a place you can go. But it's it's a lot more complicated in general relativity. And uh, I don't know if we should break this down somewhat. Maybe I already said something that's confusing, but... Um, 
Well, don't worry about it because we've got a whole big conversation ahead of us. So let's let's say that you and I we were we were pretty far away from the event horizon of a black hole. We're in a, a spaceship. We've got our thrusters firing, so we're managing to stay at a constant distance away from the black hole. And 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 imagine that it's it's many times the size of the event horizon away from it. That we're we're not super close up against it. And you know, let's say we've got a real advanced star. Our ship and we've got a little shuttlecraft with us and we're just going to take this shuttlecraft from our position we're going to release it and we're going to let it fall directly into the black hole now what is it that we're going to see as this shuttlecraft moves away from us and starts to fall into the black hole What's going to change about the shuttlecraft as we see it is it just going to look like we would expect it to look if it were all lit up, that it would just move farther and farther away from us. And when it went through the event horizon, it would disappear. Right. So this is a good question. This is a good thought experiment. Um, and it's one of the first thought experiments that people did in trying to understand these solutions. So the first time that people did this thought experiment um, in like the modern way was after Carl Schwarzschild, who after whom the uh, you know the the Schwarzschild black hole solution is named, um, found these solutions only a year after Einstein published the equations for general relativity. So this was 1916. Carl Schwarzschild said these are complicated equations, but I can solve them if I make some simplifying assumptions. So this is something that we're trained to do as physicists. We want to simplify a problem and try to understand a, uh, an easier version of it before we get a hard version of it. So he made the assumption that nothing in space-time is changing and all of space-time is spherically symmetric, and he was able to solve and find what we now call the Schwarzschild black hole. And yeah, this is this is one of my favorite things because if you take space-time and you assume it's static and unchanging and completely empty, that there's nothing in your universe at all, you get you get Minkowski space. That is that is the special relativity solution to general relativity. And then you can go what Schwarzschild did, and you can go one step ahead and you can say, okay, I'm gonna put down a point mass at one location in this spherically symmetric, unchanging static universe. And you get these equations for a black hole. And if you try to go to that next step and say, okay, I'm going to put a second mass down in this space-time, uh, there's no solution to that. General relativity is not analytically solvable if you put down two point masses in the same space-time. Well, yeah, maybe we can get into that later. But... Um... Let's go back to the question, which is, uh, what would you see? So the first, uh, the first people that did this thought experiment um, ended up calling these solutions frozen stars. So this was after some, um, I think this was after some guys named Tolman and Oppenheimer um, realized that, um, you know, you could set up these uh, these Schwarzschild solutions as the end result of a star that did collapse. And then they asked, what would that look like? And they ended up calling it a frozen star because uh, the phenomenology of what you see is that stuff that gets closer and closer and closer to the event horizon gets a larger and larger redshift. 
So this is gravitational redshift. This is uh, where the wavelength of photons that come out of a gravitational potential gets stretched by a huge amount. And so the amount of stretching has to do with how deep you are in the gravitational potential. So this amount of stretching um, goes to infinity if the source that's emitting those photons, the, the light, the image that you see, is approaching the event horizon. So this so, is this is like an asymptote, right? Where where it actually gets an infinite amount of redshift as it approaches the event horizon. And this is not just in terms of color. This also is going to experience an infinite amount of time dilation as well. That's right. That's really the same effect. So in a way, isn't it true that nothing's going to disappear? That's right. Um, so, so gravitational redshift and time dilation are basically the same thing. If you can think about, um, you know, what's emitting the light that we see is something like an atom. There's like an electronic transition. There's like a little uh, electric field that's vibrating up and down a certain number of times per second. And so, if you time uh, if you time dilate that vibration then it gets stretched out, which is redshift. So not only do you see the color of these, uh, of these photons getting redder and redder and redder, also if the object that's emitting those photons is, let's say it's emitting a pulse every second on the time that it's keeping, then you're going to see those pulses get spaced farther and farther and farther apart. So that last pulse, that 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 thing emits before it from from its perspective before it crosses the event horizon will that last pulse actually get stretched out to infinity i guess it can uh in a sense so the four-dimensional way to think about it is that the closer you get to the event horizon um the longer that photon that's emitted uh kind of hangs out near the event horizon. So it's trying to get away, but the amount of kind of progress that it makes away from the event horizon um, kind of depends on how far away it already is. So the closer you start, you have a kind of exponentially longer time for that photon to get out. So if you had a photon that was emitted while you were sitting exactly on the event horizon, then that photon would just keep sitting on the event horizon forever. Interesting. So so if I were someone who didn't know all the intricacies of general relativity, I might start to ask a question like, what happens then if I'm outside the black hole and I drop in a relatively large mass? Will that mass seem to, I don't know, get smeared out or asymptote on the event horizon of the black hole? And if so, for an outside observer, how is it possible that this black hole's ever going to grow and have its event horizon increase in size? Mm, that's that's kind of complicated. So the other thing that happens when these photons are redshifted is that they, they don't only get redder, they also get dimmer. Um, so as something is approaching the event horizon, uh, eventually it just fades to black at the same time as it's fading out of the part of the electromagnetic spectrum that we can see. So eventually it's just a question of, can you see the thing or not? Is there any detector in the universe that's sensitive enough 
to notice the presence of that object or not. And and at that point, you'd have to say, well, you know, I guess we're going to be limited by by wavelength, because if you're a photon, your wavelength gets stretched. And at some point, you're limited by the size of a telescope you can build or a radio signal you're sensitive to, like the size of planet Earth or the size of the solar system or the size of the visible universe. You You can't very well build a detector larger than the size of the universe. That's right. The other point is um, that a light that's coming out of some object, um, I'm not sure if it can actually get stretched to lengths that are longer than the size of the black hole itself. That's kind of tricky. Well, I would I would imagine you could, considering that, um, you know, if you take a look at radio waves and you're emitting radio waves, uh, radio waves are already, you know, one to 10 meters in wavelength, if you if, if you want to go to a long end of radio emission. And if you were to compress, say, the Earth down to a black hole, the event horizon of the Earth is only a centimeter in in diameter. So are you saying that as you got closer to a black hole, that was the mass of Earth, you couldn't emit radio waves anymore? Uh, if we get into questions of uh, these tiny black holes, then um, you know we have to start worrying about so much physics at the same time. So if if a human being was near a black hole that was one centimeter, then they're not gonna get swallowed up by the whole black hole. They're, I mean, they'll they'll get torn apart because the tides that will be exerted on their body are gonna be huge. Yeah, you can work it out, and it's something like ten to the twenty-two pounds of force, or something. It's not. It's not between your head and your toe. It's not. It's not pleasant. Right, but uh, you know, if we just take like a hydrogen atom, that's uh, you know, uh, an angstrom in size, and we throw that into uh, an ordinary stellar mass black hole. So the hydrogen atom has a radio transition, uh, the, the best known radio transition from it is the 21 centimeter uh, hyperfine uh, transition. Right. The, uh, the spin flip transition, which, which you can all learn more about on Starts With a Bang podcast number 41 with Beth Fernandez that we did just last month. Yeah. So, so if this hydrogen atom is falling into an ordinary stellar black hole, then that 21 centimeter radio signal would get stretched out. And eventually, the math would tell you that it's going to have a wavelength that's longer than the size of the event horizon of the black hole itself. And I feel like there might be some other very subtle effects that happen if you if you actually tried to, uh, to, to calculate what the radio signal would be from this single hydrogen atom if it was supposed to get stretched out to a wavelength that was longer than the size of the black hole. But this is such a detailed calculation that I think that it's uh, probably too technical for this podcast. This is not a calculation that I've ever done. Well, let's not let's not worry about that and let's maybe move on to some other some other interesting phenomena about the black hole. So we talked about what you'd see outside the event horizon if something went and fell in. What would you see though? If you were the one falling in, if you were on board that shuttlecraft that fell into the black hole, it would appear very, very different for you than it was for someone watching you fall into the black hole. Right. So this is another great question that um, is hard to understand until you start thinking four-dimensionally and thinking about the, the space-time structure of event horizons. 
So when I was a student, I was thinking of this paradox of at some point, if you're falling through the event horizon, maybe your feet go through the event horizon before your head do. Does that mean that you won't be able to see your feet anymore? But here's the thing. <laughs> Everything that you see is always in your past, right? It always takes light time to get from wherever it started into your eyes. So the only the only things that you can observe are things that are in your past. So let's say that you were in this precarious situation where your feet have already crossed where the event horizon should be, but your head is still outside. If you're looking towards your feet, you're going to see your feet as they were in the past. So you're actually going to see your feet when they were emitting light while they were outside of the event horizon. So so what you're saying is your feet emitted photons before they crossed over into the event horizon. And once your feet cross over to the other side of the event horizon, to the inside of the black hole, those photons will still be on their way towards your eyes in that intervening time. So you'll still be able to see your feet as all of you, the whole you, your eyes, your feet photon system falls into the black hole. There's never a moment where it goes dark. I, I remember working out this calculation. I wasn't thinking about feet. I was thinking about the longest book I ever read and imagining I'm falling into the black hole while I'm on the last page of The Count of Monte Cristo. And will I be able, will the light stay on? Will I be able to finish this book before I hit the central singularity? And only by, by doing that calculation could I say, yes, yes, I will. Because even though the book falls into the black hole, the photons from the book in my frame of reference can still hit my eyes, even though the photons are headed towards the singularity, even though the book is headed towards the singularity at the center. I am also accelerating towards that singularity, and it's possible that I will get to the end of the book before everything winds up at that central point where everything ceases to exist. Yeah, that's right. That's a good explanation. So the the other thing to bring up is that um, we should talk about redshift again, because redshift works not just for photons that start very close to the event horizon and make their way out. It also works the other way for ordinary light out in the universe that's then falling towards the event horizon while you are about to cross the event horizon. So just like the photons going out get redshifted, the photons coming in get blue shifted. So the farther you fall into or, or you know, towards the event horizon and past the event horizon, the larger this blue shift is going to be. So the whole universe is going to start getting extremely bright as you're falling through the event horizon. Now, now this is really interesting because I understand that there's actually a point when you fall into the event horizon, if you do the calculation, if you fall through the event horizon and a photon comes in behind you, there's actually a point where you'll reach a maximum blue shift. And then beyond that, as you get closer to the singularity, things will start to redshift again and eventually redshift asymptotically down to a frequency of zero or an infinite wavelength because your acceleration gets so large as you approach the singularity. 
That may be true. I don't remember actually. Uh, this is this is a trickier calculation to do because uh, the the easy calculation to do is to pretend that there's somebody who can measure the energy and that somebody is not moving with respect to the nicest coordinate system that you have. I I'll I'll fess up. I only know the result of that because Geraint Lewis in Australia did that calculation in 2017. <laughs> okay, yeah, but the the thing is that once you get inside the event horizon and and for rotating black holes it's even farther out um there is no observer who can sit there in your nice coordinate system without moving all observers are forced to move um it doesn't matter how much you know power you have with your jetpack you are just forced to move through the space time so so then you have to take into account the motion of the observer as well uh to to figure out the redshift that you would actually observe as you're falling towards the event horizon and i admit i haven't done that calculation no it's it's okay there are there are no shortage of very difficult calculations to do in general relativity and maybe this is a good point to bring up this idea of you know if you go and put down one mass in your universe, you can solve that in general relativity. If you allow that mass to rotate, you can solve that too. But like you said, you put down a non-rotating mass, that problem was solved a year after general relativity was published. You put down one mass and you allow it to rotate, that problem wasn't solved for almost 50 years after Einstein put forth general relativity. And then if you go to the two-mass problem, we know that not only haven't we solved that, we know there is no analytical solution to solve that. That has to be solved numerically. I think we know that. I think we know <laughs> there's no analytical solution to it. Maybe that's wrong. Uh, I mean, I expect that to be true, but um, I don't want any mathematicians to get mad at me because... I don't know if there's a proof that there can't be an analytical solution. Okay. Well, we'll let the mathematicians get mad at me because I'm the one who asserted it without knowing whether it's proved or not. Uh, it's, can... definitely, it's definitely extremely difficult. So people, um, people were very interested in this problem because, uh, you know, back in 1915, 1916, when Einstein was working out the basic results of his theory... Uh, he was looking for what could be a source of what's called gravitational waves, uh, which is one of the main, you know, fundamental differences between general relativity and Newtonian gravity. So in Newtonian gravity, information about the gravitational field is just transmitted instantaneously. And that doesn't play well with special relativity. It doesn't play well with causality. Um, whereas in general relativity, information has to be transmitted at the speed of light. And the way that that information is transmitted through the gravitational field is through what's called gravitational waves. So Einstein went looking for what could be a good source of gravitational waves and realized that masses going around each other can actually produce gravitational waves. So just planets and stars orbiting each other's. Right. Uh, and this is this is wonderful because you can actually start to say, oh, no, this means this Newtonian idea of a fixed, stable orbit 
isn't true that if you have one mass orbiting another or two masses mutually orbiting their center of mass in Newton's gravity, this can stay stable arbitrarily far into the future. But in Einstein's general theory of relativity, there is no such thing as infinitely stable, that every orbit will decay over time. Yeah, this is actually a really cool property of gravity that uh, it's not just that these orbits will decay. There are a lot of things about gravity that have this feature um, that if you look at the thermodynamics of gravitating systems, it has a very similar property. So if you take a globular cluster that has a whole bunch of stars in it that are going around each other, um, if these stars get close to each other and give each other little gravitational kicks, they'll tend to eject stars from the globular cluster. So over time, the globular cluster itself will very slowly shrink as it sheds mass. Yeah, this is this is fascinating. I love I love the two words that we use for this. The first word we use is we call this violent relaxation, where the tiny masses get ejected out. And a property of this is that this means the larger masses wind up more tightly bound towards the center. And we call this mass segregation. So we have violent relaxation that kicks out the tiny masses coupled with mass segregation, which pushes the larger masses towards the center. And there's a large school of thought, although I don't know that anyone has proven this, that this is where the more massive, supermassive black holes theorized to be not only at the centers of globular clusters, but found at the centers of spiral and elliptical galaxies come from. Yeah, that's true. So we we have observational evidence for supermassive black holes in the centers of ordinary galaxies, spiral galaxies, and elliptical galaxies. And there have been claims in the literature of observational evidence for very large black holes. We tend to call them intermediate mass black holes. Uh, those are bigger than stellar mass, but smaller than supermassive black holes. Uh, and there's been claims that there are intermediate mass black holes in globular clusters, but I think the jury is still out on that one. I'm not sure that anybody has an agreement, a consensus, that there are intermediate mass black holes in globular clusters. Yeah, I think I've seen these claims floating around for for over a decade, and I, I know I've reported on them more than once. And, uh, and on further review, it feels like there's still definitely room for the, no, there isn't a black hole in their team. They, they still have legs to stand on. Yeah, but I mean, these observations will get better. Um, and hopefully, we'll be able to, I, I would love to find definitive evidence that there are intermediate mass black holes. Because one of these big open questions is, how do supermassive black holes grow to the sizes that they are in the universe today? So we understand how when galaxies merge, which, you know, this sounds like a, a very violent thing, but and it is a violent thing, but it happens in the universe. We, obs we observe it happening. Every galaxy will go through one major merger in its lifetime. And when that happens, the, the supermassive black holes in these two galaxies will eventually sink to the, the middle of the um, combined galaxy through um, dynamical friction, uh, 
and the mass segregation that you that you already mentioned and find each other and eventually merge. And so we understand how if supermassive black holes can find each other and merge, they can get bigger and bigger and bigger. But the way that people have modeled this, you always have to have a starting point. And people have started with an early universe and seeded it with black holes that are already something like a thousand or 10,000 times the mass of the sun. But the question is, how do we form those black holes? So for that, I think we would need some intermediate mass black holes. Well, it seems like that's only logical if you want to uh, if you want to build up there that you need the intermediate steps to get there. Um, because when we when we look at our best theories, right, we have never seen the first stars. We've never seen a population of stars made of pure hydrogen and helium of only the elements that existed right after the Big Bang before we formed any stars before. There's some hope that the James Webb Space Telescope might find them, um, but we haven't seen them yet. But in theory, right, according to all the simulations we do, whereas the average star we form today has a mass of around, I'm going to say around 40% the mass of the sun, that happens because we have these heavy elements that allow cooling to happen at a certain rate. Without those heavy elements, we don't have that same mechanism of cooling, and so it takes a larger cloud of gas to collapse to form stars. According to our best simulations, the average mass of a first star should be about 10 times the mass of the sun, or 25 times larger than a typical star today. So at those masses, we start to think, you know, pretty much every star we make is going to go supernova and will either make a neutron star or black hole. And at the high end of the mass range, whereas the most massive star we know about today is somewhere between about 200 and 300 solar masses, we might be talking about stars early on that can be in the thousands of solar masses. And one of the possible fates of stars is not just supernova, where the core becomes a black hole, but direct collapse, where an entire star can collapse to form a black hole directly. So if we start with seeds like that, I'm not saying that we know this is how it happens, but this seems like a very feasible path, especially given mass segregation and the fact that you can have multiple thousand-ish solar mass black holes merging together. It seems like a reasonable pathway to build up to these supermassive black holes without creating too much of a problem. Yeah, that's true. So this direct collapse is very similar to that Tolman-Oppenheimer thing that I mentioned a, a little while ago. The frozen uh, star scenario? Yeah, so it's interesting that Tolman and Oppenheimer thought of this, you know, they were just doing a thought experiment and did a calculation based on it, but it might actually be the origin of the seed black holes that went on to, you know, merge together and form the, the first bigger black holes. Um, the jury's still out. I think there are some people who hope that there were already primordial black holes formed in the Big Bang. Um, so, uh, you know, th these questions might actually be answered with uh, gravitational wave detectors in the future. And, that, and that's fascinating because for a century from when Einstein proposed his theory, it took literally a hundred years for us to first robustly, directly 
detect a gravitational wave. But everyone knew for decades that they had to be there, right? I love the circumstantial evidence that led up to the existence, the known existence and detection of gravitational waves. And that's the fact that we were actually able to measure not black holes, but rather pulsars in a tight orbit around one another. Pulsars are the most accurate natural clock in the universe, these these millisecond pulsars. These are old neutron stars that rotate with extremely strong magnetic fields. And, and for people who are like, how can a neutron star make magnetic field? Well, only the inner 90% is neutron and the outer 10% is charged particles. So you, you spin it real fast, you get these really strong magnetic fields, and they will cause the emission of radio waves. And every time this pulsar goes around, if it happens to point at you, then pip, you get a radio signal and you hear the pip, 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 you know, up to hundreds of times a second, depending on the speed of your pulsar, and they keep time so regularly that you can listen to them and you can look away for like a year and you can go listen again and you will know whether a billion pulses have passed or a billion and one pulses have passed. And so by measuring a system where you have two pulsars orbiting one another, you can actually, using the timing from these pulsars, start to measure, hey, what is the timing, what is the in-spiraling happening, and you could actually detect the in-spiral of these pulsars and know that something is causing these orbits to shrink and calculate what is carrying that energy away and find that it's absolutely consistent with Einstein's theory's prediction for the gravitational waves they should emit. Okay, that was... <laughs> <laughs> that was a very good uh, summary. So, but I want to back up uh, a little bit. So, there were some interesting things that you said. By the way, your um, what's the right word? Uh, I don't know. Are you your, talking about my bip 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 bip? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how would uh, your parody of a pulsar? No, I don't know how to call that. Uh, um, <laughs> it's my onomatopoeia for a pulsar. Yeah, that was very impressive. Oh, anyway. <laughs> thanks. I, I recommend everyone play trumpet in elementary school for a little while to learn how to do that. Okay, so you said that um, that we've known for decades that gravitational waves had to be there. And the history here is actually really fascinating. So there was a big debate during the, I want to say, 60s about whether gravitational waves were real or whether they were just the ripples of coordinates in general relativity, because coordinates don't actually mean anything in general relativity. And there was a famous debate that took place at uh, the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. At, I think uh, I learned about this. Wasn't, wasn't it Feynman who came up with the crushing blow to that debate? So that I've I've heard some um, historians talk about this meeting, and Feynman was definitely there, and Feynman gets a lot of credit for this. Um, uh, but we have to go back and check with the historians because there's a transcript from from this meeting. Um, somehow somebody was taking notes, and I think that uh, Feynman was not actually the first person to propose this thought experiment that convinced everybody that yes, gravitational waves have to be a real physical effect. He might get some credit because. He's very convincing, but I think somebody else had the thought argument, the thought experiment earlier, and this is called the sticky bead argument that, you know, as a gravitational wave passes by, its influence on freely falling test masses, if you just have two 
beads sitting in space. You're, you're, you know, out in empty space away from any gravitational fields and you take two beads and you put them, you know, a meter apart. If a gravitational wave passes by, then the calculation tells you that the distance between these beads is going to oscillate up and down or, you know, left and right, back and forth. The amount of space between them is going to change. So the debate was, is this a real effect or is it just the coordinates that are wiggling? And it looks like the distance is changing, but it's really just the coordinates that's changing. And the sticky bead argument is, well, you just put something, um, a, a rod uh, in this space, and you take these two beads that have holes in them, and you put them on this rod. Uh, and now as the gravitational wave passes by, what it wants to do is it wants to change the distance between these two beads. And there's nothing that's pushing the beads uh, apart from each other. There's nothing that forces them to be a certain distance apart from each other. But if you have this rod there, then the rod has internal stresses, right? It has a structure, there's wood fibers, or maybe it's a crystal structure, and all of the atoms want to be a certain distance apart. So those internal stresses keep it from changing its length, whereas the beads are free to slide on the rod. So they change their distance and the rod doesn't. And if they're allowed to actually rub on the rod, then that means that they can heat up the rod. And that means that gravitational waves are causing real physical effects by actually transferring energy into this system. So if they had known about, I don't know, piezoelectric crystals and had just said, let's imagine we have that substance here, then when you change the distance, you're going to get um, – you're going to get a change in distance here, and that's going to put stresses, which will cause the generation of electricity, which therefore you have to pump energy into, and therefore gravitational waves have to carry energy. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, this idea of, you know, how do you extract a signal comes from a thought experiment very similar. So Joe Weber was uh, an experimental physicist um, I don't remember if he was at the Chapel Hill meeting, but he was very well aware of all of this discussion about gravitational waves at the time. And he said, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and actually build a detector to try to detect the, these things. So he built what was called a resident bar detector, which is basically a big cylinder of metal um, that you try to isolate as well as possible from all of the, you know, noisy acoustic vibrations that we have in, in our daily lives. And then he instrumented it with sensors to try to detect whether or not there were vibrations that were being driven in this bar, which he would rightfully assume would be due to gravitational waves. The difficulty is that the rest of the world causes much larger vibrations, and it's insanely hard to isolate a resonant bar well enough to actually detect gravitational waves. And if if the waves weren't so weak, uh, what he had built, I understand, was incredibly impressive. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, the guy who taught me general relativity in grad school was named Steve Detweiler. Oh, and, I know Steve. I oh, know Steve. Yeah, yeah. Steve was great. Steve was wonderful. Um, Steve told me a story about meeting Joe Weber, and Joe Weber was like, hey, hey, come here, come here, because he had his apparatus where he had the bar inside and then the big shield outside that was designed to isolate the bar from all the surrounding noise. So Joe Weber goes and takes a hammer 
and hits the shield on the outside, you know, bong, and he's like, watch, and you watch the vibrations of the bar on the inside, and it's completely isolated from it. It isn't resonating with the hammer strike on the outside, on the outside shield. So he had built a very impressive shield. Unfortunately, as I understand it, the signal that Weber was looking for for is still many, many orders of magnitude below his noise floor, and therefore all the detections that he had claimed over the years turned out to be nothing more than noise and weren't repeatable by other people. Yeah, this is true. This this history is kind of fascinating. So I think that the field of gravitational wave physics owes a lot to Joe Weber because he basically instigated so much. So not only did he say, I'm going to sit down and actually do this thing. I'm going to build something and try to detect it. The fact then that he started claiming detections actually drove a bunch of other people to say, you know what, we have to go and find out whether or not this is real or not. Because some you know, very careful people did calculations of how large they think these signals should be. And they said, I don't think that you can really detect those with a resonant bar detector. How can we detect them? And that eventually led to the design of LIGO that did detect gravitational waves. But I think it owes a little bit to Joe Weber. The other thing that it owes to Joe is that um, because Joe was making these claims of detection, uh, the LIGO scientific uh, collaboration decided that they had to be extremely thorough and extremely careful and extremely sure when they claimed their first detection. Yeah, and they they were, they absolutely were. They, you know, when we talk about that first detection that was announced to the world in 2016, that detection was made within 72 hours of run two starting of advanced LIGO starting its first run. Um, that detection came in just the first few days and they sat on it for months to check, to make sure, to, to make sure there were no errors possible, to make sure this detection was robust, was above the noise floor, was, was everything they said it was because they knew that they had an incredible hurdle they they had an incredible standard of evidence that they needed to present if everyone was going to believe this and now here we are 11 positive detections in and you really have to uh you really have to be grasping at straws to say that they have not robustly detected what they claim to have detected yeah i think that um if if people were not convinced by the first one then they should really be convinced you know even I mean, there were some people who were not convinced, and I think there are still some people who um, are not convinced for various reasons. I'm not really sure why, but the data is available, the analysis codes are thoroughly vetted internally, and they're you know available for download. You can go and look at the code that they use to download. It's extremely thorough, so I don't know how anybody can not be convinced. Yeah, and I think I think there may it may be true that there may be room for improvement as far as signal extraction. We know, for example, that when uh, when they did a reanalysis of the data, they were able to pull out even more detections that did rise above that gold standard threshold for signal to noise ratio than they were able to do before. So I wouldn't be surprised if, as time went on and 
analysis improved, they weren't able to extract an even better signal. But but I do think, especially if you look in light of the neutron star neutron star merger to get away from black holes just a little bit, um, the fact that we saw the optical follow up, um, like that's that's really a slam dunk. We saw gravitational waves and electromagnetic signals from the same object in the same yeah Yeah. like 70 plus different observatories have seen it so um i think i think there's always more analysis you can do there's always more information you can try to extract but at this point i think that the overwhelming consensus is yes we have robustly detected gravitational waves so with that said um there's a whole future ahead of us for gravitational wave astronomy that's going to take us beyond stellar mass in spiral and merger detections of black holes, where there are other types of black holes we expect to see in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, so let me just say, first of all, LIGO is not done yet. They've been uh, upgrading for a little while now, and they should start their next observation run in April, I believe. And assuming that they've gotten the detectors to the sensitivity level that they were hoping, then they would probably be detecting about one black hole, black hole merger every week. So we're going to go from this era of a handful of detections where we can do some sort of, uh, you know, case by case study of each binary merger that we see which is kind of like stamp collecting. And then we can move to the era of uh, population statistics. So LIGO will be able to say things about all of the black hole mergers that happen out to you know, the horizon that w- uh, out to which they can see. So they'll, they'll be able to say, here is how many black hole binaries there are in the observable universe. No, and that's and that's super fascinating because it was really it was really a very short time ago that we didn't know whether LIGO was going to see anything at all. And now we've been able to place some wonderful and tremendous constraints about what actually exists based on what LIGO's already seen. For example, um We know that 99% of black holes that are in binary merging systems in this stellar mass range are below 43 solar masses. And this was announced by, um, oh, who was it who gave a talk at AAS this year? I forget who it was who gave the talk at AAS, but there was a plenary talk at AAS that was given this year that said that, yep, 99% of the black holes in binary merging systems, based on what we've seen and haven't seen so far, have to be below 43 solar masses. And they also said just remarkably about how far we've come, about how many merging black hole binaries are there in our observable universe that we we had almost no constraints at all and now we know that there's about 800,000 merging black hole binaries every year plus or minus about 500,000 yeah so i re- i remember when i was a grad student and people were you know this was in the days before ligo was detecting gravitational waves um but but people like uh vicky caligaro were doing these numerical simulations to uh, to compute how many 
um, mergers, how many gravitational wave signals should LIGO see when they get to their design sensitivity. And I remember the numbers for expected number of black hole mergers being between 0.4 events per year and 400 events per year. And that's per galaxy or? No, no. This is just the number of events that they w- that LIGO would see per year. Oh, wow. The number of events detectable. Yeah. So they didn't know whether it was less than one a year or whether it was 400 a year. So you're talking about a, a factor of a thousand in uncertainty, and yeah. now we're at and a factor of less than one. Yeah, now we know to you know the first decimal place, I think. Right. And what LIGO is going to teach us are some fascinating things as it continues. We're going to learn what are the mass ratios in these binary systems. Are they all of nearly equal one-to-one masses mass ratios, or are there large mass differences that we haven't seen yet? Is there a pileup of of black holes above a certain mass are how small are the lowest mass black holes out there because we've been biased towards seeing the larger mass ones because they're easier to see um and do merger rates change as the universe evolved do we do we have a different merger rate as a function of distance or redshift? And this is something that these are all questions that we expect to learn the answer to as as time goes on. All right, so now we can get back to your other your earlier question, which is what other um, what other observations are going to give us more information about black holes in the near future? So, on the horizon, there huh, on the horizon, uh, good one is uh, there is a collaboration. There are several collaborations around the world called um, Nanograv here in North America. That's the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves. That is good, good acronym. These are, these are the pulsar timing studies. That's right. Yeah. So there are a bunch of people who are using pulsar timing, um, to detect gravitational waves. This is slightly different than what you were saying earlier about, um, the Hulse-Taylor pulsar binary and a whole bunch of other pulsar binaries where you have evidence that the orbit of this binary is shrinking due to gravitational waves. Instead, the idea is there are a bunch of pulsars scattered throughout our galaxy, and essentially, we can tell whether or not the distance between the Earth and those pulsars is being changed by a passing gravitational wave. So if you look at the correlations between when the pulses from all of these pulsars arrive at your radio telescope, you can tell whether or not the Earth is kind of wobbling around in space because of gravitational waves. And that's that's so fascinating because this tells us we've got to be looking for a totally different class of gravitational wave than what we see from in-spiraling binaries. Because if we're talking about gravitational waves that have this effect on these timescales, we've got to be looking for something that is a much lower frequency or longer wavelength gravitational signal than we get from merging binary black holes. That's right. So the the timescales are, one, how long does it take for you to detect a, a pulse uh, from a pulsar and then detect the next one? And then, you know, you'll go back and uh, go back to your radio telescope maybe two weeks later to measure when those pulses are arriving again. So that sets the highest frequency of gravitational wave that you can measure. 
because if you're only going to your radio telescope every two weeks, then you can't measure a gravitational wave with a period that's you know two weeks or shorter. And on the long end, we've only been timing pulsars since they were discovered by Jocelyn Bell Burnell, um, and and only timing them really really well. Uh, for the past, let's say, 15 years. So these data sets that these that these pulsar timing array collaborations have built up are now approaching around 12, 13, 14, 15 years of data. So you can't ever detect a gravitational wave with a period that's longer than the length of the data set. Oh, that sounds like my almost my original dream of how I would someday become a famous professor is I wrote a paper back in... 06 or 07 about uh, using pulsar timing to detect passing dark matter substructure halos that you, if you had a dark matter substructure halo, you would get a wavelength independent shift in the pulse arrival time of pulsars dependent on where the halo was and how it moved relative to your line of sight to the pulsar. Except this is saying instead of looking at one pulsar or pulsars in a specific region of a sky like a single globular cluster, we can look at all of the pulsars simultaneously and see how is the pulse arrival time changing, not due to a single mass perturbation, but due to something like gravitational waves that travel through space. Yeah, so this these kinds of observations um, are expected to detect gravitational waves in the next, uh, I want to say, three to six or seven years. This is based on calculations of how common are supermassive black holes? How common are supermassive black hole binaries that you get from the mergers of galaxies? And then asking, what does that mean about how loud are gravitational waves in the, in the periods, in the frequency band that these pulsar timing arrays are sensitive to? So they're getting to the sensitivity level where they're, they're getting close to what's predicted by cosmology statistics. Right. And this is, this is really fascinating because everyone is hoping we get LISA, um, a collaboration between the European Space Agency and NASA to launch these gravitational wave detectors into space where they can directly detect the waves on much longer timescales than what we can see from, say, LIGO, that from LISA, because you have longer timescales, that means you're going to be looking for black holes with larger event horizons and longer in-spiral times. So if LISA flies, we get to start to see these black holes in their in-spirals and mergers, and that's going to be fascinating. But it sounds like pulsar timing actually gets to probe that same class of object well in advance of LISA's launch. Yeah, so let's okay, let's ma uh, make sure that all of the listeners know what this relationship is between mass and frequency. So, the frequency of gravitational waves that you get from a uh, a black hole or a pair of black holes that are merging uh, is inversely proportional to the mass. So that means that if you have a stellar mass black hole, you have one frequency. If you make that black hole a billion times heavier and make it a supermassive black hole, then the frequency goes down by a factor of a billion. So whereas LIGO detects things uh, with frequencies of, let's say, 100 hertz, 
Um, the folks in the nanohertz, the nanograv collaboration, you can guess what their frequency range is. They're looking for gravitational waves that are in the nanohertz band. Um, so if you carried along that calculation, you'll notice that there are two orders of magnitude missing from what I said. Uh, and that's actually because um, the merger itself is out of the frequency band of the pulsar timing arrays. So they, so the pulsar timing arrays will be able to see um, a pair of supermassive black holes going around each other, but they won't be able to see its merger itself. The merger would end up in the LISA band, which is between the LIGO band at around 100 hertz and the pulsar timing array band, which is in the nanohertz. So LISA is looking at things with frequencies of about you know 10 to the minus 5 hertz. And that's that's really fascinating because one of the things we've gotten from LIGO is we get the in-spiral and merger of these stellar mass black holes, but only in the very final stages. The, the strength, the amplitude of the gravitational wave signal is dependent on how close you get, where you get a big, big signal right in the last moments of the merger, but a relatively small signal during the in-spiral phase. So it's only those last few orbits of in-spiral and merger that LIGO can detect. Then if we go look at LISA or or nanograv, right? Nanograv is only really picking up the in-spiral phase because the merger phase, we just don't have black holes that are that large, that are at that super great distance. You would really need like multi-trillion solar mass black holes, and we don't think those exist in the universe. I think the largest one we've seen is still in the tens of billions, maybe approaching yeah, I think it's 100 billion. Yeah, 10 to the 10. Yeah, 10 yeah. to the 10 solar masses. Yeah, um, and you would need to go higher than that to get a merger that was in the, say, nanograv range. But LISA is going to be really interesting because even though it only gets those last, you know, 10 or 100 orbits, that's enough lead time that you might actually know months in advance of when a merger is going to occur. For LIGO, we can maybe get like seconds in advance, which isn't enough time to go point your telescope at something. But for LISA, we are going to get that incredible possibility of saying, hey, guess what we've detected? And in one month and 21 days and three hours and six minutes and four seconds, we're going to see these black holes merge in this portion of the sky. Get your telescopes ready. Yeah, so let me back up and and first of all, I uh, I think I was wrong. I, I I think I said ten to the minus five hertz, but really the Lisa band is uh, up at around ten to the minus three hertz. Um, it's but, in the millihertz range, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so my bad. Um, but so let me say something about being able to predict when this merger will take place. So it's really cool that with Lisa you'll be able to say, uh, be able to predict when a certain merger will take place. Um, but what's even cooler is that gravitational wave events like the first one, GW150914, could have been detected with LISA if LISA had been flying five years at well, you know, five years prior to uh, to the detection of 150914. So that that um, that system at some point in its life, had an orbital frequency of around you know 10 to the minus 2, 10 to the minus 1 hertz, which means that a LISA-like 
observatory would have been able to detect it, uh, and then it would have gone out of the Lisa band as it got faster and faster and spiraled in, and then eventually it comes into the LIGO band. So people are are really excited about the prospect that in in the 2030s, after Lisa is supposed to launch, there will be systems that you can find with Lisa and then predict that you would be able to see them with next-generation ground-based detectors like LIGO, but like a better souped-up version of LIGO, uh, five years or three years later. That's really fascinating, and that's something I didn't know because I thought that the amplitude of you know things in the tens to hundreds of solar mass ranges, I thought that would give too low of an amplitude for LISA, but you're saying that's not so. It's not so. It's, it's tricky because um, what you need to do is you need to ask, how long is this system going to stay at a certain frequency? And the longer it stays at that frequency, the kind of louder it is in the data at that particular frequency. And so the farther back you go in time, the slower the in-spiral gets. So as you go to lower and lower frequencies, the the gravitational wave that you get from a system actually has uh, a higher amplitude at a lower frequency. Oh, I see what you're saying. This is like what we call in optical astronomy, this is like what we call integration time, where you can just sit there And it's basically like pointing at the same system on the sky and leaving your shutter open and just collecting more and more light and more and more light and more and more light until you can see it up against the backdrop of empty space. And because of what Lisa is doing, it's basically watching these systems orbit and orbit and orbit and building up this large signal. And if Lisa is just continuously observing, eventually that system is going to stand out against the background of noise, even though it's low in amplitude. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's really clever. Leo, we are getting close to running out of time, but you did mention something that I thought was really fascinating early on that I didn't want to let go of. Um, You said something early on about imaging a black hole's event horizon. Now, right, so this people, is, go ahead. Just go sorry. ahead. <laughs> this is this is another uh, observatory or experiment that is you know coming up soon. So there's a collaboration of folks um, called the Event Horizon Telescope who are using again radio waves to try to learn something about black holes. So their source is uh, supermassive black holes that are very nearby and have a whole bunch of hot gas around them. So remember when we were talking about these experiments of what you would see? Well, stuff that's very close to the event horizon is extremely dim. But if you have some gas nearby, um, then it's still going to send photons to you. So if you, if you could imagine a bunch of gas near a black hole, then you're actually going to see it glowing hot, with a kind of dull spot in the middle where all of that gas is getting funneled and falling into the black hole. And people like to call this the shadow of a black hole because you can see a bright ring of emission from from gas that's nearby, but a dull spot in the middle because there's no gas that's emitting towards you from that spot. So this is sort of like looking at Saturn without the planet. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I I hadn't thought it, about it that way. But yeah, it's like you can see a ring 
and there's nothing in the middle. And that is kind of a telltale sign that you have a, a supermassive black hole with a bunch of gas around it. Um, so there are some targets that we know about um, that are the best candidates for the Event Horizon Telescope to be able to detect. Now, this is an extremely difficult thing to do because black holes, for their given mass, are the absolute smallest thing in the universe with that mass. So that means that if you want to image this shadow, you need to have the highest angular resolution possible. And this is only possible with radio waves um, because unlike with optical light, where with optical light you get to count the photons that come in, with radio waves you actually get to measure the electric field that comes in. And that means that you can use a whole collection of radio telescopes all around the Earth in a kind of coherent fashion to synthesize an enormous radio telescope that has a diameter that's the size of the Earth. And this is this is one of my favorite things about using this technique in astronomy that's it's very closely related to what we call very long baseline interferometry where basically you have an array of telescopes set up wherever you have them set up and they're simultaneously right ignoring that we can't really do simultaneous in different locations for different observers right ignoring that relativity technicality you make simultaneous observations of the same object from different locations and you get the resolution of the distance between the telescopes, even though you only have the light gathering power of the actual dishes themselves. It's so bright in the radio. However, these black holes are so bright in the radio part of the spectrum that you can actually pick up the signal with the individual dishes themselves. Right. So the, the two best objects that the Event Horizon is really interested in are, one, the supermassive black hole that's in the center of our galaxy that has a name called Sagittarius A star. That just means that it's in the constellation Sagittarius, and it's the brightest radio source in that part of the sky. And the second one is a supermassive black hole that's in a galaxy called M87, which is in the Virgo cluster. Now, the black hole that's in our galaxy is around four times, is about four million times the mass of the sun. Um, and it's obviously a lot closer than the supermassive black hole that's in M87. But the supermassive black hole that's in M87 is, uh, I want to say, something like six billion times the mass of the sun. So even though it's farther away, because it's so much bigger, uh, it's still about the same size on the sky as the shadow of Sagittarius A star should be. They should have close to the same size shadows. Yeah, I think I think those are the numbers I have in my head too. That the black hole in M87, it might be maybe fifty or sixty million light years away, which would put it about twenty to maybe twenty-four times as far away as the black hole in the center of our galaxy. But it's also fifteen to eighteen times as massive as the black hole in the center of the galaxy, which means you're right. They they have almost the same angular diameter, and we get an extra boost 
boost, by the way, from general relativity, don't we? Because even though we get a size for the event horizon, right, the Schwarzschild radius, the size that we see, the angular size that this will appear to be in the telescope isn't actually the Schwarzschild radius or the Schwarzschild diameter of the black hole. It's going to be about, I think, two and a half times that size due to these weird effects of general relativity and the bending of space-time. Yeah, so there are a bunch of interesting effects that go into determining what is the, um, you know, what is the size of the shadow. Um, so one of them is the fact that when you get pretty close to a black hole, um, you can't orbit at any arbitrary distance. There's a closest orbit where the orbit is stable. If you're closer than that orbit, then than that orbit, if you want to have a circular, you can't have a circular orbit. Yeah, you guys um, so love you your acronyms and call it ISCO, don't you? Yeah, so that would be the that stands for the innermost stable circular orbit. So the innermost stable circular orbit is for a Schwarzschild black hole is three times the uh, Schwarzschild radius, or yeah, three times the sorry the event horizon um, radius. Um, so that means that the that there's that that the only matter that's emitting from interior to that radius is matter that's on its way into the black hole so it doesn't get a lot of time to like hang out and make a lot of radio waves for a long time instead it just kind of gets dim as it falls into the black hole and that's it whereas matter that's outside gets to just hang out and sit there and keep emitting in radio waves that's really fascinating. Thank you, Leo, for a wonderful interview and for this fascinating tour of black holes. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with before we wrap this up? Uh, well, I just want everybody to keep their eyes peeled for when LIGO starts making uh, new detections. And, you know, the Event Horizon Telescope had a great data collecting run um, I think back in 2017, so hopefully they'll release some results about that soon. We're all looking forward to that. Thank you so much, Leo. Once again, this is Dr. Leo Stein, Assistant Professor of Astronomy and Physics at the University of Mississippi, teaching us all about black holes. I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters who make the Starts With a Bang podcast possible. Thanks go out to everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. I'd like to personally thank Robert J. Hansen, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Matt Rumel, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Graham, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Chris Shaw, Thomas Sola, Denier, Frank, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, John Duffield, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Nick Del Roy, Paulina Barron, Patrick Dennis, David Uhl, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Daniel Nadasi, Eric Brown, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Elver Sosa, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Kozura, Marcelo Barnaba, Rafal Wojcik, Danny, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Charles Buchanan, Brainwise, Stefan Berneger, Ken Blackman, Frederick Y. Martello, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Joseph Dvorak, Hannah Kahn, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike, Ahmed Lee Comsey, Jeffrey Kidd, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radek Nesbida, James Nance, 
Sydney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Benjamin Turner, David Cascioni, Philip Radilovic, John Seal, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. 